0: Boom, we're back. So some, uh, some podcasts start with triumphs and fails. Like there's a great parenting podcast that, that starts with parenting triumphs and fails. And oh. <laughs> I, so, I, so I'm thrilled that I get to report a triumph. Oh, really? Because if it's about parenting, I can only it's report not about fails, parenting. I think. Yep. Uh, I wouldn't begin to venture into that territory. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a triumph of pronunciation. I, we pronounce Larissa's name correctly. Listener Larissa right. confirmed for us that we pronounced her name correctly. So that's a triumph,
1: my friend. Right. Take them where you can get them. And and this is just a request of listeners when you when you do email and you want your um, and you don't mind us mentioning your name on the show. We only use first names and in almost all cases. Yeah. Be sure not to include your the pronunciation of your name so we can see what Joe says. (laughs) It does make it more experimental. Yeah. And And then and then a follow up email to tell us whether Joe got it right. Exactly. What else? What else we got? I can tell you one thing: we've got what? a fantastic guest this week. It, oh, so good! Hmm. Stay tuned, people. So we got longtime listener, first time feedbacker. Ooh, this listen, listener, Rebecca. Listener Rebecca, uh, just started listening last month after getting after a recommendation from a friend. Yeah, who said that she really should listen to the. Uh, Mersa Broderon show. And, and that's just a, this is, this is a happy story of, of one person telling another person yeah. about something that could enrich their lives. happy at many levels. It's Similar. also happy because it's about the back catalog. It is. If, if you have listened to the show and dislike it, you should tell other people not to listen to the show. Sure. We're, we embrace all forms of kind of social interaction, yeah. right, Joe? Yeah,
0: we embrace the transmission of information.
1: And she says, she's got some feedback. One, yeah. she thinks we really need an index. Somewhere. So that she she can search by topic. And now I will say we have an index of a sort, right? Of a sort. Maybe it's not what she's looking for. But this is you should go to the website. I think if you go to oralargument.net, dot net, you'll go to our page and you have to click on oral argument there and, and you'll 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 find us. Yeah. Uh, also just hydrotext dot com. Mm-hmm. I think in the show notes somehow you can usually click and get there. So. Uh, In your podcast app. Okay. But if you do that, you'll find links to, of course, the shows and you'll find uh, a link to all the episodes, just a list of all of our old episodes. But there's also something called Oral Argument Index, which includes an alphabetical listing of all of our prior guests Mm -hmm. and the shows on which they appeared on the left side. And on the right side is a list of topics. Yeah. Uh, And a search box, I think. Yep. So you can type in, you can just search and it would anything that's mentioned in any of the show notes for a prior show will just come up. Now, that list of topics for reasons I can't entirely explain is not alphabetical. It's huh. partially alphabetical, so you may have to do there aren't that many. It's kind of a it's kind of a long list, but not really that long a list. Yeah. But go through there and see if there's a topic that interests you. I try to tag it reasonably when I put the shows in, although so I'll go back and I'll look at the list of tags and try to yeah. hit it with the right tag. So you no,
0: know, I suppose I do de- in an ideal world, um, It would be possible to have for for any podcast it would be possible to sort of grab a transcript and do a text search on a transcript but the techno we're just not there yet i mean in an ideal world though that would be pretty cool right Right. because because this is the the podcast form hey siri make a transcript in the audio is 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 harder to find things it's not it's not a written text it's it's spoken word and that's part of its charm, but that's also one of the things that makes finding things that you want to go and listen to again. I'm sure
1: we've got some loyal longtime listeners who are out there just transcribing everything. Banging away they, at it, yeah. Okay. Like, do you think so? Oh, speaking of which, some no. feedback that I got, which is not among this feedback. Oh, sure sure. I, I had uh, listener, David, asked in a in an email whether the... Podcasts that we had done for the class that I taught that we referred to last week. Yeah. The Modern American Legal Theory podcast, which yep. were that that series was called, as you know, the Cyberloquium. <laughs> 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 a name I chose it's a truly horrible name that I chose only to antagonize, Joe.
0: And it works every time, even
1: now. <laughs> even, <laughs> okay. it, it still works. You're pretty much ready to get up and leave right now, aren't you? Yep. Yeah. Uh he asked if that was publicly available anywhere. And the answer to that is no. Huh. No, it's not. At some point we might bring some of those shows back or make it some kind of bonus thing. I'm not sure, but I'd have to re-engineer some of those yeah, a little and bit. Yeah,
0: I've, I've actually asked you to do that a few times and the and the engineering challenge has sort of has been the rate limiting factor on that and and it's kept the rate at 0 <laughs> thus far.
1: But Yeah, uh, when I looked at it the audio quality for me is just not quite there and then yeah. I have to take out I have to go back into the file and take out the copyrighted music that we use as the intro and you know there's yeah. a few things you have to do. Uh, the one episode that I would put out though, I did an interview with guido calabresi about mm. the cathedral piece yeah. the property rules and liabilities right. which is great it is great for and he's some obviously, reason he's obviously much more important than i am
0: uh, and so interview audio with him is categorically <laughs> superior to any
1: any audio that, that would have been true if you'd done the interview but the point is that uh it was kind of standalone Whereas in the other ones, it was, it yeah. followed the syllabus. A little, anyway, so th- that one could go out. Yeah. There's this annoying, elec- there's this annoying electrical beat. Yeah, the audio quality yeah. on that one is particularly terrible. And I don't know why it was. It's, that's my yeah. recollection. So, anyway. so maybe one day we'll get to that. So listen, um, he's got a book coming out lately uh, soon though, mm-hmm. doesn't he? Yeah, but well, there'll be another chance to talk so about
0: you, it. So you should do an interview with him about that. Yeah, we'll see.
1: We'll see uh are there other suggestions here someone uh then she has some nice things about how uh, one of the things she says is that law school there ought to be at least some law school courses taught in kind of the format that we do this show did you see that i did and it was funny because
0: it reminded me of a conversation we had the other day about based on the podcast robot or not Mm -hmm. that having a a little six or seven minute
1: oh don't no don't tell people about our idea i'm not going to tell the specifics but (laughs) this mini so notion of the debate and,
0: and it's sort of this comment of hers reminded me of that conversation right. we had about a mini-sode of six or seven minutes of debating on something.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm not a believer in different learning styles. I think a lot of that research has been debunked, oh. at least as I've seen it. So I'm not necessarily a believer that there are this kind of learner and that kind of learner. But I do think that some people just enjoy learning in some ways more than others. And there are, there are some people for whom learning from a show like this with like dialogue between two people it's more would be, fun it'd be more fun and they would really be into it there are other people who said please just tell me just give me <laughs> tell me what's going please on please just give me the handout yeah if you could just and so i can read it yeah if one of you could shut up and the other could just I, I can tell you who they'd be telling to shut up <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the dulcet tones of joe miller that they would want to silence that's for mm. sure well uh she yeah
0: so she she talks about the fact that It could be fun to have a course that was taught this way. I agree.
1: It could be fun. And she, she mentions a couple of episode ideas, which I think we'll keep under our hat because maybe we'll do those. Oh, okay. Good Um, point. And, and then finally she has a PS in there. Did you see that? Um, uh, yes, I did. And the answer is yes. Yes. We, in fact, we more than one now still not a whole lot more than one. No, we're still looking at fewer, fewer downloads from there than from maybe Indonesia. Like we We get more downloads from pretty out of the way places than we do from North Dakota last north Dakota North Dakota made some progress they're no longer yeah, they had nowhere to go but up <laughs> that's, you make it well, you make it sound praiseworthy literally for a long time it was zero and uh, then' that's it was what I'm one, saying and I tweeted out I think the when we got that one listener from North Dakota and it's it's gone up from there, cool. although not as the, the 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 second derivative may be negative, yeah, they don't specialize in meteoric rises. Well, uh, they might just not in listening to this show, and yeah, well. and really, who can blame them? <laughs> <laughs> so we, I think we've got a we've got a blog we want to mention to people too. Right? We have a longtime listener who has started a blog, and we will put a link to it in the show notes. It's uh, sounds really uh, good for the Fed Courts fans. Yeah, narrowestgrounds.blogspot.com. We we have Fed Courts
0: fans. We when we do Fed Courts episodes, we get feedback from people who really dig it,
1: and from people who do not fair enough <laughs> we do we um, but but the former outnumbers the latter i think that's right i think some of our really great so shows the latter group with the really great just guests lump it yeah have have been on on fed courts issues and and so uh uh this blog narrowest grounds has some posts on things like some retroactivity of habeas corpus which is a,
0: a federal and state intertwining question and good stuff
1: yeah what counts as what counts is uh State law and federal law and when it's it's very interesting stuff. I, I I have a lot of thoughts, but I don't think I'm going to go into it now. Okay. Do you mind? I don't mind. Let's see. Then we have a suggestion. Do we want to mention this from listener Caitlin? Yeah, because it's
0: very interesting that she listens while she's preparing food. So she associates us with food. Which sounds delicious.
1: I got now hungry I'm hungry. I, I know. Because I, I can imagine you and I talking and someone preparing a delicious meal and that makes me hungry. Yeah. Probably because it's 430 and I'm already thinking about dinner. Mm. Hmm. Point. Uh, but she's got some suggestions for talking about uh, pol- different kinds of political systems. We need to. We do. do and, and so this is a great suggestion Keep saying that. And so thank you for that suggestion. We will. Uh, let's say take it under advisement. I think we have to play everything close to the vest, don't we, Joe? No.
0: Nicholas Georgiakopoulos. <laughs> uh, OK, here Seems we go. to be opposed to the idea of an episode about Dworkin. No, he's, no, he, he he he's giving us that. some advice about how to do it. Well, but look, the advice begins if contrary to good reason you do decide to have a session on Dworkin, hello. I mean that's pretty critical <laughs> of having a session on Dworkin, right? <laughs> I guess I guess you're Calling right. Calling the
1: very notion opposed to good reason <laughs> I, contrary to good reason. I guess you're right. Um, I thought it was pretty clear in the last show. Like I am not I, I I find I find the fit and justification idea and the idea behind the chain novel. Those are very powerful ideas, which I think are useful to both beginning lawyers and beginning legal thinkers and advanced legal thinkers and advanced lawyers I mean these are very important ideas yes it doesn't mean that I'm a dworkinian or I believe in dworkin's normative theory but I still find value in it and I think we can explore that right. in a way which is also critical and which is what he wants us to do yes because of the the role of
0: incentives based thinking in a yeah. in a dworkinian approach and so he's right if we were to have an episode like that we would want to include that in the in the way that we
1: explore it I don't think we'll disappoint Listener Nicholas. Do you? Not any more than we usually do. <laughs> well, speaking key. of that, so he, has, he also comes down on some very important uh, long-running oral argument questions. Yes. Well, one of them long-running, one of them not so much. Consistent with good reason, he prefers surname to last name. Yeah, and this, I really, awesome. my heart sank, because you know how much I love Listener Nicholas Georgiakopoulos. And I read that, and I just, oh boy. Uh, now, he also favors, it's perhaps clearly
0: not for, surprisingly... It's clearly last name. Rather than go saying uh, third from the end or next to next to last, uh, he he likes anti-penultimate.
1: Yeah. It, it makes sense. These two things go together. Your preference for anti-penultimate... Uh, uh, la, 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 la. And surname. <laughs> Your preference for anti-penultimate and surname. Those yeah. go together. I think they do. And yet, And just to <laughs> make sure... People are
0: fully apprised of how right they are when they imagine the kind of person I am. Yes, I often use a fountain pen. Oh, boy. okay, that kind of rounds it out for you. <laughs> when I'm writing the
1: words surname and antepenultimate, penultimate I'm probably writing them with a fountain pen. Do, do you know another long-running oral argument thing, which is dropped off the, dropped off of the, dro, dropped by the wayside, no. dropped off the cart? What do you, I don't know, no. I'm looking for metaphors because I'm... Fallen the, by the wayside? Yeah, fallen, you know, on the berm followed by the boards. Mm-hmm. Speed trap law. We have not talked about speed trap law uh, in an age. I'm surprised more people aren't clamoring for it because there's a huge <laughs> vacuum. Because we are, <laughs> as we, you know, we, we we everyone knows that we are. America's, Maybe they're getting used less. We are America's faculty colloquium. On speed people tra- know that. No, yeah, on, in general, we are America's in faculty general colloquium. and also, but in
0: particular, we are the world's
1: foremost law. authority on speed trap law. That's Perhaps
0: right. Perhaps public authorities have been enforcing that less, knowing that we were on the task would be calling them to the
1: carpet. I don't know. I feel like the whole thing slowed down a little bit, though, when you admitted that you had trouble seeing lights during the day. So not what I said. <laughs> Deep cut there. Deep cut. Okay. Do we, I think we've got one more. Is that right? Uh, yep. Do we want to save this one? So let me just say, uh, uh, Listener Nick got back in touch. Uh, we, we referred to Listener Nick's commentary on... This is the one about the puff pastry and Occam's razor last time, right? right. And he got back in touch to clarify with an extremely thoughtful email. Mm -hmm. And I had lots of thoughts about it, but I wonder if we want to go into this one now or just tease it. Let's tease it. Okay. And then we'll explore it further later. Okay. Because next, now it may not be next week, although we might record an intro next week. I'm not sure. Right. But next week we're going to be live in Atlanta. Right. At the Tech Law Institute. Exactly which is part of the Georgia continuing legal education program and the text law section of the Georgia state bar. So if you need, if you're in Georgia and you need continuing legal education credit and it's still possible to register, you should register. come on down and we'll be there doing a live, uh, a live episode for the people there. We'll be live. And and it's not still
0: possible to register. Um,
1: I'm sure you feel a little awkward about the bad choices you've made. Right? <laughs> I somehow I doubt. I think people are going to be perfectly okay with their choices. Yeah, maybe, I think maybe. Uh, yeah. So that's all I've got for now. Uh, if we're going to hold off on listener Nick's feedback yeah. until a, a later episode cool. um, to give it more time. Yeah. The so time that was that it a deserves. procedural tease. That was not even a substantive tease. I don't even know. You showed no leg there at all. <laughs> gross. It's an expression. I, I know, but it's a gross. There are plenty of gross expressions if you think about them. All right, let's let's get on with our our truly awesome guest, fantastic guest, <gasps> and stop blabbering. So good. There she is. Hello. Hey, how are you?
2: I wasn't sure.
1: I was. We were. We were taking care of technical. You know, we had the, the, my dog was lying over my headphone cord. Um, Rigel had left a lot of dishes down here, so kind of typical. <laughs> That's pretty standard. The dish maneuver is pretty <laughs> the, standard now. These are the kind of technical difficulties we have in our podcasting world headquarters, Dahlia. You
2: should, you should probably take a picture of the dishes. Don't you think a little public shaming?
1: <laughs> Do you know what I did another week when this happened? I took, I took all of the dishes, which were gross. Let's just stipulate. And, yes. the, and the wipes that I had to use to clean up under the dishes. They and, were numerous, too. And this, like, gaming pad that he uses, which he always plugs in, which is just annoying. And, and I took that whole pile and I put it directly in the entryway to his bedroom. Nice. It was so deficient, though, because as Christian
0: is about to tell you, all he did was step over it. What
2: <laughs> I... It's a little <laughs> passive-aggressive. A little bit.
0: No, well, well, what I would have done, and this, this just goes to show that I do not have children. I would have put the stuff in his bed. (laughs) Yeah, he
2: would have just
1: slept on the other side. Probably. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) to be clear, it's it's a single bed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It would have sucked if he crawled in with you and Meredith, and there was like a little pizza on his back.
1: That would totally be him, though. That would totally be him. <laughs> uh, we have we have a lot of analogies between our two families.
2: Yes, we do. And we, you are our canary in the coal mine. So we're always <laughs> like, "Oh God, that's coming. That one's coming."
1: Let me tell you, Dahlia, it's full of coal. <laughs> the coal mine is full of coal and and, and some combustible to- coal dust. Uh, we were this just, yeah, into,
2: like Santa's reindeer or something. I, ho- I
1: hope. I hope so.
2: Fearsome? transmogrifying christmas coal thing
1: i think transmogrifying is the right word but i don't (laughs) know i don't i don't know that it it turns back but anyway at some point it does they assure me it does at some point Uh, so um what are we what are we going to do what are we going to talk about
2: uh joe (laughs) you should see So Joe unfair! Is
1: so angry. He's so angry with me. I book Most guests.
0: This is what I do. I book guests. The guest is here. I'm My sur- work is done. I'm surprised <laughs>
1: you don't just get up and leave. He truly looks dolly like he's considering it. <laughs> I am. <laughs> one way to approach this is as uh yet another Supreme Court roundup. Okay. Indeed, there's a bunch of interesting stuff to talk about in that regard. So I'm not by saying yet another. I'm not implying there are too many. Um,
2: have you done one this term? N- no. Okay. No. Well, oh, a I- preview?
1: No, we have not done a preview at all. No no we 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 kind of catch as catch can and 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 as you know that our show is not a purely kind of supreme court or even court focused show uh yeah. but we you know when stuff is interesting to us we, we talk about it and there are there are a bunch of interesting cases uh, coming down the pipe. now
0: before we talk about cases though right, let's talk about um let's talk about the change in the rules dahlia about uh lawyers waiting in line at the okay. court and the fact that you can't, you can no longer apparently, according to the court's new rules, pay someone to do this for you. What, ha, why, why this change? Why now? Was there chatter about this beforehand around the court community or what's going on?
2: Well, you know, it was interesting because every year there's a story or two about it, Joe. And Obergefell was particularly hideous mm. in terms of You know, my memory of the last time it was egregious was the first ACA arguments when people were paying people to stand in line for three days. And that was gross. And then some reporting that showed that an awful lot of those people were homeless people and uh, they didn't even know why they were there. Like it was just ucky. And then I think uh, when Obergefell was argued, it, it sort of hit a zenith of uckiness. You know, there were parties to that litigation, like named people who couldn't get into the you know, room <laughs> because there weren't enough seats. And yet, you know, folks were paying folks to stand in line and it was just unjust and unfair. And as you know, there's no TV. So if you miss it, you miss it. You know, sorry. Whoops. Sorry were they, about-
0: and they were just paying in the lawyer line or were they also paying out in the public line? It
2: was both. Well, the rule is
0: only about the lawyer line, though, right?
2: So so what's interesting, and Christian and I had this conversation uh, randomly last week, is that the court made the decision to address the lawyer line and not the public line. And so you're now allowed to uh, pay a line standard to stand in the public line, but not the Supreme Court bar line. So they sort of split the difference. And you know, if you think about the optics of that for a minute, it's really deeply strange. It, it, they're either saying some version of, oh, well, we can control the lawyers, but God knows those other people, like, we can't impose, that's that's not our problem. Now,
1: to clarify here, the the lawyer line is just for people who are admitted to the Supreme Court bar. So if you're a lawyer and you're not in the Supreme Court bar, you, you have to been use admitted, the public line. Then you have to use the public line. That's, that's correct, isn't it, Dahlia?
2: Yes, that is correct. And and what was was just odd was that they made no mention of the line standards in the public line, which, you know, is as much of an issue as the lawyer line. And the other thing that's sort of interesting, just to like report back from a conversation I had with Christian about the the optics of this is that, you know, my impression was they were doing this because they were trying to make it look fair and equitable. I think, Christian, tell me if I'm mistaking this, you felt that it was kind of because a lot of lawyers griped about the guy standing in front of them in the line, right? Well, I, I,
1: who knows what I said from day to day. But <laughs> um, my my impression was that when it comes to the Supreme Court's own bar, it may have felt that it was regulating itself in a way right. and therefore felt that it was either unseemly or that it at least had the power. Um, to 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 make for it, uh, you know, well, to regulate. And when it comes to the public line, they may have been more libertarian, free market about it. Like these are just, pe- you know, what power do we have to regulate random people before they come into the Supreme Court? Um, and so, so maybe there's like a a public-private distinction going on there, where the where the court feels like the the regulation is is more. You know, not not that there's any difference in. In optics, looking at it from the outside, but maybe they felt they had either more power or more responsibility to kind of regulate their own. No, there's
0: a whole uh, Christian and I actually did a great episode with a a law professor named Dave Vagundas, who has actually written a piece about the law of lines and Uh uh, and and. Changes in norms in lines and paid line uh, waiters and at congressional hearings and other circumstances in which people might uh, pay to get your place in line or pay someone to wait in line for them, and so there's actually all kinds of interesting questions in in this space in this context, but it does seem odd to me, notwithstanding the the plausible account Christian just gave, it does seem odd to me that you would think well like what's your fairness insight on the Supreme Court bar Line. If your fairness insight is, look, if you remember the court's bar, you ought to either wait in line or not, and that's up to you, but you can't make it a financial, you can't make it a matter of financial resources and your ability to pay with some money you have available that you'd rather substitute for your time. You either pay with your time, that's the medium of exchange we're willing to accept, uh, or not, right? then that's what's fair. Wouldn't the same fairness insight apply to the general public? I just don't
1: understand how there could be two different fairness arguments. I was making a distinction, and Dolly, you may have a different view, but I, I was making a distinction between the, the substantive reason for why you might Want to have a particular kind of regulation, like no paid line standards, no lining up before a certain time, all these substantive rules you might have, and then the reasons that you would have to think that you can regulate an entity at all. And 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 I agree. I mean, and and I think your argument is right is right, uh, plausible
0: at least, and may and maybe even just frankly just. But but I'm not defending. I'm not defending the substantive
1: rule that they. Uh, And that's what I was trying to shift to. Was so so
0: even if you even if you are correct on the institutional point about regulatory target, right? Let's take that as a given. W- w- and and say, okay, but let's ask the substantive question, is there would there be different fairness norms in these two contexts? And the, I don't think the answer is yes, is it? I think the answer I, is no. I think
2: the answer might be yes, Joe, only because, and, and I this is not an original argument. I was actually talking about this last night. I did a, a panel with um, some other Supreme Court reporters, and Jess Braven from the Wall Street Journal, his thought about it was, you know, for one thing – Lawyers are so rule-based and rule-abiding that they just don't want to be offside with the court. And so there's a way in which, you know, the court is saying we're going to basically play to people who have this norm of they're simply, we're going to create a rule and they're going to follow it because we can't enforce it, but it will self-enforce. That was his insight. The other insight that I heard, and I think this is even more plausible if I were to answer yes to your question... I really think that the appearance of the way it was shaking out which was it was the big big Washington firms that were paying, you know, the thousands and thousands of dollars the same firms that litigate at the court and have, mm. you know. And I think that must look particularly hideous. Mm. Um that you know these these were not you know, members of the bar who, you know, had some interest in the case beyond just we're sending in some lawyers because we're a big D.C. firm and we can afford it. And that may may have made the court feel a little hinky, too. And it's also
0: it's not even the D.C. lawyers who like, you know, Brett Hoff and Kaiser, this very famous labor side law firm, for example, that I'm sure has many times successfully represented people before the court. But they're not members of that sort of elite Supreme Court bar. And in that sense, I guess that story from a few years ago about how concentrated the cases have become in the hands of a few Supreme Court advocates of people like Carter Phillips and Tom Goldstein and Maureen Mahoney and others, that, that that sensitivity is probably played into as well, right? I mean, the thing is getting more focused in fewer and fewer hands.
2: I think that's exactly right. That was an amazing piece of reporting that Reuters did just a year ago. Um, More or less saying, you know, there's this tiny cadre of almost exclusively white men who argue the huge bulk of the cases at the court and the, the justices use it as a kind of a vetting system almost where, you know, if Tom Goldstein is bringing a case or, you know, Walter Dellinger or Maureen Mahoney, well, then it's a, you know, a case we should take and that it's just another way in which sort of the world of the Supreme Court is forever shrinking into, you know, 19 people hydroponically raised underground. To- <laughs> and so I think you're quite right that if those are the firms that are the ones spending, you know, the the big bucks, particularly, you know, to pay homeless people uh, to stand in a line in a rain, then it looks even more really starting to look grotesque. And I think the other takeaway uh, that I have from this rule change and the other rule change, you know, the broken links and the rule change about transparency in editing. I mean, those were a bunch of rule changes that were really a function of the court hearing criticism about the court Mm. from, you know, the academy, from the media. And I, I, I think really the larger lesson to me beyond the strangeness of regulating one line and not the other is that, you know, Richard Lazarus writes a, a piece and the court says, oh, my God, you know, we can't do this anymore. You know, Adam Liptak reports that there's all these, you know, broken links and the court is responsive. So I just think, you know, the, for me, one of the big, big kind of takeaways from from those changes that were announced uh, is, wow, the court sometimes gets it. You know? <laughs> they hear the criticism.
1: It's I want to connect this with. Something we talked, I think we talked about this, you know, it was a little over a year ago that you were on, and, and I think we talked about this with Tom Goldstein, too, in that episode early on about oral argument. Um, Do you know they won a Peabody, Tom Goldstein and SCOTUS blog? Yeah. 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 It was really great. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm
0: move on <laughs> move on governor
2: no that's just, fantastic it is fantastic. It, is,
0: it is fantastic but christian <laughs> christian is angling to make a remark about how we're up for the peabody because he likes to use this phrase um because in his dorky moments
1: where everyone is up for I the peabody not, dahlia knows that we're up for a peabody
2: uh i am so excited that you are up for a peabody right now
1: <laughs> it's anything can happen you're I egging just, him on it's I, not appropriate sh- let's just stop talking about, i don't want to jinx it so let's just stop talking about it mm. um but the notion that there's an it that could be jinxed is itself absurd. <laughs> uh, th- so the, the the thing I want to talk about though is the the way that this the line standing thing relates to I think the more general issue of the importance of oral argument because it is like you know it's like standing in line for the latest Apple release or for a rock concert or something else and what the justices have to say at least those of them who talk about it when asked about say televising oral argument or releasing video right away or, or live streaming audio is that it would lead to this. Well, there are a number of arguments they make. You, you all know them, but one of them is that it leads to a misimpression of what the court is. And it leads to bad incentives. Will they, you know, they're concerned, of course, not they, but their colleagues will act out. And, mm-hmm. and But I kind of am sympathetic to the idea that it might distort things. I I don't think that's not a reason to do it, but, um, but this other idea that, you know, oral argument is Actually, you know, although it is a part of the decision process, it is not a very important part or at least not a crucial part of the process of getting a case and deciding it. And to put more and more emphasis on that one aspect of what the court does might be misleading. I think that's going in the into the heads of at least some justices with this. And yet the public doesn't seem to feel that way. And maybe it's because that's the only access that we have to the court's decision-making process, except for the downloading of opinions and the reading of the opinions themselves, which I guess the justices would argue is the most important thing. They are the most transparent branch because they air all of their disagreements and they write them down, et cetera. Um, is, is there a connection here in between these? I, I don't know if there's, a, I'm not trying to assert there's a connection between the court's motivation to try to clamp down on the unseemliness of rock star style lines for oral argument i'm not saying they that that's what motivated them is to de-emphasize oral argument as as being important um but but is there in fact some connection between these two things you're looking side like have i not said this well joe no i think you said it well i'm just thinking about it what what do you think dahlia
2: i think he said it peabody well joe <laughs> boy boom
1: unbelievable boom. that's a, I'm going to play that one back. That's our nomination right there, I think. <laughs> this is, we are now a Peabody-nominated podcast. Well, um, da- while Dahlia picks
0: up her mic, which she obviously just dropped, uh, I'm, ca- I'm calling the show over. <laughs> if we're just going to sit here and humor Christian, I'm not game for
3: it.
2: <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to respond I think seriously. Okay. I think that there's this paradox built into, you know, the the court's attempt to both devalue and overvalue oral argument. And I think the devaluing is exactly what you're saying, right? It's, it's, you know, it's just, everybody's made up their mind. Nothing changes there. It's just us talking to each other anyway. Um, there's nothing that happens in there that's legally significant. It's just theater. It's just an opportunity to see the court doing something. Uh, Cause you know, watching them tie their shoes isn't enough. And mm-hmm. I think that that's one piece of it. Then there's the sort of, Oh, it's so complicated. It's so hard. Right. Stephen Breyer goes on Colbert to say like, I'm uh, going on television to tell you why there can't be televisions in the court. and it's, <laughs> it's because it's just too complicated and hard and sophisticated and people won't understand. And so I, I think part of, you know, the the, the sort of schizophrenia built into the courts, you know, is obviously important. If it wasn't hugely consequential, they wouldn't have, you know, marshals confiscating your notepad and, you know, sending you out of the room if you don't wear, you know, formal attire. I mean, I think it's just, it's very important. It's all scripted. It's, you know, there's red curtains, there's black robes. This is close to a church service. But it's also they're trying to say completely trivial and there's nothing here you need to see. And I think those two things are are really hard to square. And it a little bit goes to how fatuous these arguments are, because they always pull out some version of one of these arguments without trying to reconcile them with one another.
1: Yeah, and I've heard Kagan in that, I've referred to it a couple of times, that University of Chicago Law School podcast. The idea was that, boy, people would be really proud if they could see the open debate and the level of care and thinking that goes into discussions they have about the cases behind closed doors. Like that, That's where the real work of figuring out what the court thinks occurs. And I wonder how different it is. You know, I'll, I'll just say I've never been in that room before. <laughs> so I've not had the pleasure of being a Supreme Court justice before. So I don't know what that's like and whether it's dramatically different from what goes on in the church service slash colloquium slash theater of oral argument. But is there I don't I, I don't know what the truth is. You know, is the truth that oral argument changes things? I know at the appellate court level. It rarely changes anything in most appellate courts, I think. Sometimes, you know, it's, it, it happens enough that you think there's some value in it. But um, but does it at the court? And and how much of what goes on in front of those red curtains is similar to what goes on behind those red curtains? And what should the public see? Do we see enough? I, I don't know. I, I don't even know how to think. It seems like a big mess of things. And a long time ago, a decision was made about what parts of that process are public and what parts aren't. But I'm not sure if I had everything to redesign now. What I would do,
2: right? And and I and I one other piece of this that's that's probably important to braid in here is is just the part that is decision announcements. Because the thing that really makes the justices nervous is not oral argument. I think that they get very very antsy around the idea of public decision days, in in large part because when one justice reads their their sort of summary of of what they're going to do it doesn't get vetted, and you'll often have the <laughs> justices sitting there being like, "I didn't sign that opinion, right?" I'm <laughs> now they're they're holding out, you know, this crazy ben- bench summary as though that's what the opinion. I didn't agree to that, and there's really a lot of like weirdness going on, and it's it's completely uncoordinated and unscripted. But
0: that's recorded now, and and. I don't know how long it's been recorded, but certainly Oye.org is posting those audios.
2: They are. Uh, and it's a little weird because they post them, you know, five months later. Uh, but at least we can hear it. But it's a very strange, you know, decision days are not nearly as controlled as, as oral argument days because, you know, and, and this is always the example I talk about because it was so fascinating. You know, when Glossip came down on the last day of the term, the the, the you know majority opinion is read. Okay, that makes sense. Then Sonia Sotomayor reads a dissent. It's it's rare, but it happens. Oh, wait, there's Briar, he's reading another dissent. Oh, wait, he's saying the whole death penalty is <laughs> unc- Wait, what's <laughs> going on? Scalia seems to be speaking like spoken word poetry of occurrence, <laughs> out of order. And he's just talking, like it was so odd. And, and I think that the chief, it's not clear to me the chief even knew that Scalia was going to go. Mm. Those have the possibility of kind of embarrassing the court in ways that oral argument almost can't.
3: Mm.
0: <laughs> and
2: I, I'm always curious what the transcript of those looks like.
0: So would video make all that worse? Make, uh, any, make any anxiety you feel about announcements uh, worse. I suppose you would say, well, people could see my facial reactions and because I haven't seen that thing before, I don't know exactly what it's going to be. And I don't want people to see my spontaneous facial expressions.
2: I think that's right. I think that as with all things, video might incentivize people to behave better. As in, oh, I should keep a poker face instead of rolling my eyes.
1: <laughs> are, are you advocating body cams for Supreme Court justices here? Nice.
2: <laughs> you know, it's just I, I have to say, gossip, and I, I know you've heard me say this before. At least Christian has heard me say it before. It was so deeply strange that Justice Scalia was just taking kind of off the books potshots at Justice Breyer, and it was the whole thing was so. Kind of personal and ad hominem, and you literally got the feeling. You remember pippi Le Pew and that cat? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Justice Kagan looked like the cat. Like she was just leaning away from the. Like <laughs> I'm not associating myself with any of this, and it's so palpably, you know, uncomfortable when they start behaving that way. And I think, you know, one thing to to keep in mind is that almost no one read Dissents until recently. I mean. Maybe in a big case, one dissent, but suddenly everyone's like, I have a dissent too, and mine is even meaner. Um, That's (laughs) just, Mm -hmm. you know, would cameras make that better or worse? It's a really good question. It depends on what their objective is when they read it at a public session. And I, I'm no longer clear on why that's being done.
1: Up until now, it hasn't mattered, right? I mean, there's been so, so I one of the reasons. If I'm a justice, I don't necessarily care what the summary is that's read, is because the only people who ever hear this are in this room, and the reporters are going to have access to the opinion right away, and they're going to read from the opinion, you know, uh, on. All things considered, they're going right. to read from the opinion. Later but your that first day. point is no longer true,
0: which is, exactly. which is now lots of people have N- now they
1: it. do right, and and now you've got you know Amicus, which is going to exert audio from the uh, reading of the decision from the bench, and and even if it's uh, four four months later, right, that's still interesting to people. If something as weird as what happened in Gossip happens, right? So is that better or is that worse? Like, is this an important? Part it. It seems like the process is over when they do this, right?
2: This is a performance of something. Yeah. Um. And and you know th- this leads to my like existential question, which I've been asking myself since Glossop, because you know as Adam Liptak said at an event uh, this week that I did with him, you know this was the first year he didn't go into hand downs. There was nobody at hand downs. You can't be at a hand down anymore if your paper expects you to have a story up, you know, eight minutes after the thing goes live on the core website. And so there are often hand down days where really strange and wondrous things happen and there's only 6 of us in the chamber. And I'm more and more perplexed and this is just my own attempt to figure out is what really happens in a hand down, what you're reading on that paper on Scotus blog mm-hmm. or is what's happening what's happening in the chamber and, and I quite frankly I know this is so meta, but I can't figure out my answer to that anymore.
1: Yeah, meta gets you closer to the truth sometimes. and I, It's got to be case-dependent.
0: I, I mean, we... because I think in most opinions, they, they, don't most opinions get handed down without anyone reading a bloody word?
2: Well, no. Most opinions, just the majority is read. And it's a, you know, a summary that is handed out Usually in the press office, the, the, the copy of the summary is handed out.
1: We talked about this on the last episode we did with you about the pro- the physical process of how opinions get handed are handed down. And so when you talk about hand down, you're talking about actually there's some boxes full of pieces of paper that have the opinions written on them and they hand them out to reporters and the reporters go running across the Supreme Court um, plaza where there are no protesters. And they uh, and they give these pieces of paper to or they start to read or they give them to analysts or they read them themselves and they start to summarize them right away. And we get, you know, some but but now, of course, these opinions, I think, as soon as the hand down happens are also on the Web. But people who are actually there watching the justices announce the opinions and read their summaries of both the majority opinion and if they want to the dissents and occasionally as in one time. This kind of off the cuff reaction to something uh, the you, you, you can't have any of your electronic stuff in there right. uh, and you can't report until you get out of there. Right. And Correct. so that's the just I was just trying to clarify what the but, duality is. But here. I was
0: in the middle of clarifying something else. OK, which please is do what that. So so my my understanding, which sounds like it's incorrect, was that not every opinion that gets rendered by the Supreme Court is read in open court. Dahlia, yeah. that's wrong.
2: That is wrong.
0: Okay. So even the very non-controversial nine-zero bankruptcy opinion is going to be, bri- however briefly, announced orally in court, it is going to be announced in court.
2: Right. I and mean, orders are not read, but opinions are read. And so you'll get whoever the, the justice in the majority will read, you know, their four-paragraph summary, and uh, and that's the end of it. And most of those are pretty pro forma. You know, it's just... Here are the facts. Here's what we held. Almost never is a dissent read aloud. I'm trying to remember. I think the first dissent that Sonia Sotomayor ever read aloud was shooty. Uh, The first dissent that Ruth Bader Ginsburg read out loud was, I think, 2006. Partial birth, birth abortion, but this just, you can go years and years without reading a dissent.
0: And was the chief's, was the new chief's uh, first dissent Obergefell?
2: I think it might have been the first one he read. Mm, I'm not 100% sure, but I know that he is not apt to read them, re- read dissent. So whether it was the first, I mean, I, I'd have to go back and check, Joe, but it, it was very, it was very striking that he read that in court.
1: What does it mean to to a justice when he or she reads a dissent from the bench?
2: You know, I'm I'm more and more. I think we have new information because, as I said, this didn't used to happen all that often. And when it happened, it was a barnstormer. You know, it was Ginsburg just being off her mind, angry in Shelby County. You know, it was uh, those were you know uh, Justice Stevens reading his dissent in Citizens United. These were you know, seminal moments. And this was the dissenting justice saying, it is as important that you hear the counter arguments as the arguments. And if that snowballed, that happens more and more. But I think that it really goes to something else that's going on, which is that these dissents are not being written for the court, they're being written for the public. You know, in Hobby Lobby, when Justice Ginsburg reads her dissent and within three hours, someone's turned it into a meme and a rap and, <laughs> you know, a tote bag. And I mean, this is not, <laughs> she, she, she's not in conversation with Justice Alito. She's in conversation with the young women, you know, who are uh, notorious RBG people. And I think that, you know, and that was, that was uh, Ladbetter too. So I think part of a dissent reading it aloud must be the performance of I am so convinced that I cannot persuade this majority to move so that I am going to talk directly to you, America, which mm. is ironic because nobody hears it well but. that's
1: that was going to be my point right it, it, like statistically it 's like talking to an empty room, and so the the so if you're it seems to me the the reasons to read have to have some kind of non consequentialist side to them because the only consequence of reading it from the bench at least is I've experienced it uh, up to now is that one line in the report, which says that justice so-and-so read his or her dissent from the bench, like, and, and that's supposed to be like an exclamation point on. So, so you do add that, like, if you're interested in making it, you know, and getting that line into the reporting, uh, then, then you read it from the bench. But beyond that, you know, there's, there's nothing right. I mean, there's no further societal consequence from having, from having done it. There the public doesn't, doesn't hear anything, but maybe you think that's enough, Dolly. Maybe you think maybe maybe you think maybe you think that they think that it's worth it to read it just so the public knows that they read it. This is like a tree falling in the forest, and all that you know is that it did fall, right?
2: Right. And- I think the justices in their head, there are cameras in there. You know, like there may not be cameras in there, but what they're doing is a huge public act, and they don't think you know they're sitting in you know the pantry reading to the Ritz cracker. They think they are reading to the world. And the mm. irony is, of course, they're not. They're reading to the three reporters who can spare a half hour to hear them read it. But I, I do think it sort of goes back to that strange duality of, of course, what happens in their matters. This is a performance of what they have just done. And so Again, I guess it's a way of saying that they both over and underestimate how symbolic and relevant and urgent these public sessions are.
1: And of course, now they have other venues. They seem to, and and you've seen this over the years. Well, yeah, yeah, after the term ends, then you know you you get candid interviews, and they increasingly will talk about what they think about what they've done. Now, do they make they make these bench statements available in writing?
2: It depends on the justice, Joe. Some of them are very good about making sure that every time they read a bench statement, uh, the press office is handing out copies of it because it is interesting. I'm trying to remember the exact line. Stevens had a line in Citizens United where he changed it from... There was some... I can't. There was some reference to World War II uh, in the opinion, and he changed it when he read from the bench and everybody thought it was a huge big deal, whether or not it was... Uh, it got reported that he you know used a more contemporary reference, so sometimes you know if you want to do the weird anthropological work of comparing what's in the opinion to what's in the statement, you can find some real revelatory huh he didn't read that he read i mean I think I said this on um, me i can't remember if I said it to Christian or if I said it elsewhere or maybe just to my rich crackers, but i I do remember <laughs> you know having such a staggering, visceral experience listening to the chief reading his dissent in Obergefell, because everybody who read it on paper, who was not in the chamber, read it as this very disciplined, pretty cool-headed, rational, certainly compared to you know the other dissents, pretty respectful piece of writing. And when the chief read it and you were in the room and you're sitting there with like Pam Carlin and Paul Smith and Evan Wolfson, you know, people who have devoted decades to this fight. And he chooses to read that paragraph where he says, you know, go have your day, you know, go out and celebrate, but know that, you know, whatever was done here was not the law. And that read so different sitting in the room. Hmm. I can't even tell you
3: hmm
0: i do think it would be interesting to um and maybe as you say it's anthropological but but i do think it would be interesting to you know compare the written summary that they read um the opinion itself maybe listen to the audio hear what they emphasize because they those three things do send different messages and then the questions that were posed at oral argument those send different messages as well um both to one another and to the public um They're all channels of information.
2: And they're all performances of different sets of ideas and values. And I think that, you know, it leads me back to the question I was posing to you, not entirely disingenuously, which is it makes you wonder which is real. Is what they're reading aloud real or is what's written on paper real? And when they start just improvising from the bench, is that real um and of Mm -hmm. course it's all real but it's hard to put your finger on what matters
1: one way i would approach that is to is like all other questions about what what it means for something to be real that it depends on why you're asking that question right and and so if you're trying to ask what i should argue in the next case i'm not hmm maybe it does (laughs) maybe i'm not so sure um, but if you ask the justices themselves, what is the law? I think they point to the opinions for sure, right? It, it, I, maybe even privately, they would just point to the opinions. That is, this is what our law is, regardless of the kind of metaphysical view they have about about what law is. But I guess if you're trying to ask, you know, how well will these people form the kinds of coalitions amongst each other they formed in the past? How often will they compromise? I would think these other these other aspects of their reality are also important so so maybe it depends on what we're asking about this institution, which you know does have this in product of deciding cases yeah, but that's not you know uh, there's a process by which they do that, and you can ask all kinds of questions about that process and 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 postulate that the outcomes may ultimately change because of changes in that process.
0: Another way to reframe this would be, um, or an alternative way to frame it would be, uh, let's say you're a court of appeals judge, and you open up a brief in a case that's going to be argued next month, and the litigant has not only quoted from a recent Supreme Court case that's on point, but then there's a semicolon, a see also, and a site to audio at OEA.org. Where the justice is reading their judgment in the case and they're and they're making the same point, but in a slightly different way that you think emphasizes something important about it. Um, You know, the federal circuit, the court that hears uh, patent cases, so I follow it pretty closely. And in the court's opinions, there have begun to crop up citations to the oral argument audio in the cases. So they'll say, you know, appellant conceded that X right. and there'll be a wow. citation to oral argument. Available online, so they'll point to their website. You know, oral argument you know, minute three uh, and twenty seconds, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and that's the site in the court's opinion. So they they will cite to internet available material. Well, what if a lawyer did that in a brief, and and you were a judge on that court of appeals? What would you make of that? Would you say, oh my god, this is terrible! They've done something. I know you wouldn't, Christian, but like, have they done something improper? Have they done something helpful? Have they done something just weird that wasted space and was stupid? Like, what did that lawyer just do?
2: Is there anything in that hypo that's conflicting with the actual law or is it just another piece of evidence that, do you know what I mean? Like, it seems to me that there's nothing that happens at oral argument that could look like it's in lieu of the holding of a case right
0: right and especially when you've got a court saying well we're just saying that the party made a concession or made an argument whereas if the lawyer in their appellate brief says well here's what the opinion in the west reporter says from the supreme court but then here's that majority justice saying something slightly different in the courtroom i think you need to know both right um That's that, of course. Those are representations about what the law is. At least that, at least one of them is masquerading as that. It's a citation. We cite authority, right? But is it authority for anything? The fact that they they both there's both a written opinion that says X, and then there's a, a a something that was read
1: in open court by that same justice that says X prime. Is is this coming down to whether you think – to the question of what the official materials of the Supreme Court are? So if you believe with Holmes – we've talked about this before – that the law, basically, the law basically is a prediction of what they'll do in the future and you just see the opinions, the argument, all of these things as various data that feed into that kind of decision about what the court is likely to do in the future – and some of that data is more valuable than other data. Certainly the opinions are more valuable than, say, the dissents, and the dissents may be valuable for figuring out what the opinion means. And, and similarly, the oral argument may clarify uh, what the court is likely to do in the future, regardless of what the opinion says. So if you take that view, yes. If you take a more formal view about what authority means and what precedent is, like that the, the opinions themselves state what the law is, and so a future case references those things which have been recognized as carrying authority, then I don't think you take the same view, right? I mean, maybe to the extent there's an interpretive problem, right? Right. It's kind of the equivalent of textualism, right? You know, we take the a textual, yeah. textualism precedent, right? And the, and the evidence from the lack of a bound volume
0: where I can go look at bench statements, right, because I can't do that. There's no, there is no bound volume. West, the West reporting system does not include statements read from the bench at the supreme court it could i suppose or they could try um, but they don't
1: and yeah, that, and that, that the, indicates that lawyers don't view it as authoritative i guess i mean I, and the question is why should the basically the rule of recognition of authoritative statements of the supreme court be delegated to a private company
0: well i was just saying it's some evidence right yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean about, they, wh-
1: about what the profession thinks
0: yeah and they have because yeah. they have their own formal reporting system yeah. and, it, and they're not there either are they? I've ne- I have don't I don't think I've ever seen a volume of the U.S. reports that purports to contain bench statements.
2: One final gloss on this, it seems to me, is that, you know, I, I think we have to sort of pull the analogy all the way through, which is that part of this is, you know, performative royal language in the <laughs> way that, you know, that the, the British monarchs would, you know. We have so ordered. You know, there's mm. a lot that goes on at the court that is not just words on paper, right? I mean, people are sworn into the bar every session. There is, you know, I now admit you to the bar. Like there's I, I just think that 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 the court is is in both of those worlds. It's both in the world of, you know, nothing that is not reduced to the four corners of an opinion matters. But then I think that there are things that happen, including right, the prayer, oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, that are performances of a legal act. Does that make sense?
0: It does to me. I mean, yeah. the, that you know, the, the way in which it's magic, right? The words make things true.
2: And, and and so I guess all I the only place I'm going with this is, you know, that it just seems to me that if an admission made it oral argument, right? Oh, I guess, you know, that's true. Under, you know, we could, you know, ban books under under this law. You know, that that has an enormous uh legal importance, right? For for citizens united purposes. And so, I think that things that are said are of 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 as much consequence as things that go into the final written opinion and I and I think that it part of what, you know, is underlying the strangeness of what we're trying to tease out is, you know, what is what is said in that courtroom formally a, an act, a legal act, uh, as much as what is written on those papers. I, I think the answer has to be both.
1: Yeah, both. It just, you know, different acts will be relevant for different things that happen in the future. You know, I mean, this is the way our lives work in every other aspect. I mean, there are some things we do that matter for a certain set of things and not at all for another, it doesn't make those various acts that we perform more or less important. They just operate in different spheres of our lives. And so to a legal institution has acts that it does, which sanctify its actions or make uh, make official its actions or add to the, add to the sense of um, officialdom, which makes people act in a more Uh, I don't know, august way and, or maybe less august. I mean, maybe you're trying to get people to be uh, more real. I mean, there are all kinds of things that an institution can do that, that, that have effects. And, and that's not, it doesn't mean that those effects are always the same. And so for some things that you're trying to study, it doesn't matter at all that the court opens up with Oye Oye. Um, But for other things that you're trying to study about the court and trying to see into its future, maybe it matters a whole lot Hmm. that it does it that way. But I, I don't know how to make that more concrete right now. I mean, yeah. Um, well, interesting. Yeah.
2: This is the most meta we've ever been not on painkillers today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so here's the other meta thing that I wanted to talk about. And and that's maybe returning to the idea at the beginning of a Supreme Court preview and a Supreme Court roundup, the kind of bookends for the public consumption of, of the Supreme Court's business. Have these become, have you noticed over your, you know, your, your tenure as a court reporter that that there's more public interest in these kinds of stories, less? Has it stayed the same? And then I kind of want to get into, like, what are these things supposed to be? Like, what are we trying to learn from previews and roundups? And are they kind of normative in the sense that they – people kind of agree on what these things are, uh, or what the important cases are, and, um, and then – from that, uh, the public kind of just agrees. Do you know what I'm talking about, Dahlia?
2: Yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny because I, I had this conversation this week with someone at the court because this was one of those years, Christian, where if you read any one of the 30 previews of Big Cases to Watch, Five Cases to Watch, we all wrote exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just groupthink mm. or there really only are five cases to watch. I know that when we did ours at Slate, you know, I got a lot of angry. Uh, emails saying, you know, you didn't do the business cases and you didn't do the environment, you know, so it, it does feel a little groupthinky and it feels as though all of those previews confine themselves to constitutional cases. There's, it's rare to have a statutory case that, you know, we think is significant. And the other thing that's really deeply weird about these, here are the seven cases to watch in the coming term is, you know, the court has only kind of settled half its docket. So we're invariably really wrong. <laughs> we'll say, oh, right. this time last year, I was probably saying, oh, well, there's not going to be a gay marriage case because the court had batted them away. Right. We, we're always wrong about those. And then I think we're always kind of too narrow about them. And I do kind of get the feeling that that's one of those places where everyone's editor says, quick, I need 900 words <laughs> on the cases to watch. And we all somehow you know, either go to the same, uh, you know, briefings in DC, or we, you know, look and see what Marsha Coyle has written, or I don't know exactly the metric, but I'm amazed at how much overlap there is. Uh, I'm just not 100% sure what it serves. And I think more importantly, I think it may disserve some really important cases, because everybody thinks, well, if nobody's mentioning, you know, this case, then clearly, it's not important. And and I, I worry a little bit that we emphasize things. I mean, the best example I think I can give this year is that everyone is talking about even well the one person, one vote case, mm-hmm. as though that is this massively consequential case. But that's kind of a slightly bonkers Hail Mary, you know, entirely ideology driven case that I, I, it's not clear to me that that is an important case. It's certainly a strange, interesting case, in much the same way that King versus Burwell was, you know, going to be a blockbuster because it was a, you know, think tank driven piece of litigation. Yeah. But I, I don't, is it the most important constitutional case of the term? I, I I don't know.
0: Well, the fact that they granted it suggests that it could come out a
1: way that would make it highly consequential, right? This is the case uh, where the, the question is whether the one vo- person, one vote principle uh, from Reynolds versus Sims. Yeah. That was, yeah. Uh, says uh, that it is, it is. it one uh one voter, one eligible voter, one vote or any person? Do you right. count every person in the jurisdiction, like yeah. a total census? And and the upshot, you know, this is politically salient because it, it asks questions about how um immigrants who are not citizens should be counted.
2: And minors and right. minors.
1: And yes. Yeah. And, and so, and so it would, be, too, it would right? be very
0: if it gets deci- if the court decides that it meant one voter, one vote. Contrary to everyone's expectations, by the way, uh, yeah. in terms of what the law, what people would have thought the law was a year and a half ago, that will be massive. Yeah, but this is what's also bothersome.
1: You, we so the, about gra- this, the fact that the yeah. granted
0: review means there's now a non-zero probability that that is
1: what they hold. And we, we talked about this a lot with king versus burwell we I think did. even right. on this show that that one of the problems and with, that was
0: not a 9 decision <laughs> it wasn't
1: but it's, it was it was hard to imagine it would have come out any other way uh. but the fact that they granted it means that there's all this intellectual energy poured into this question we have so many other important problems to solve right and and it, le-
2: and yeah. it makes it a serious case right when we list Correct. it next to you know, Friedrich the Union's case, and we list it next to Fisher, and we list it next to the abortion cases. Then suddenly, maybe even a really serious, gravitasi important legal principle, and you know, it, it, it's not right. It's an incredibly political Hail Mary, and you know, clever or, but it's it's very much what what. King was last year. And so then I think when it makes it into everybody's roundups, that, that that gives it this imprimatur of, you know, wow, serious journalists think this is a serious case.
1: I wonder if there's some kind of knock-on effect from, so I've always said that, like, the measure of a society is by the issues it chooses to think of as hard issues, right? And, and whether they're moral or they're political or legal. And certainly in the legal sphere, there's this, it, this is kind of apropos of the conversation we just had, right? That even though it's not official, the fact that they take a case doesn't, you know, if they if they end up just upholding existing authority, it doesn't change the law in a technical sense. But the fact that they took it right, right. this is the Supreme Court signaling what what are the hard cases out there?
0: Yeah, we and, think we should spend our time on the, you know, the oh, from some right wing crank who knocked into a keyboard. <laughs> oh uh, and, and this thing fell out. I mean, yeah, that's, how they, they, that's what they're
1: signaling they think is important. That's bad. Or left-wing impact litigation, which they typically don't take these days. Um, although you could argue the, the death penalty cases are, are, are in right. that category of people. You know, this is People with a strategy, people who want to move, move the ball. And when the court takes one of those cases, it indicates where the action is occurring. And certainly that's got to have an effect on people who are dreaming up the next line of cases, no matter how the case comes out. I would think. No? I, I think would, so. Yeah. I think so. Have you found that there has been a change in the appetite for these previews and, and roundups? Is it is it just the kind of the internet that, that that has led to a proliferation of Supreme Court roundups? Is it clickbaity? Is it verging on clickbaity stuff? Or has there always been, no matter what publication, you, you well, there
0: know There are a bunch are? of these in-person panels, too, right? I mean, that sug- th- those have been going on for a while, haven't they?
2: Yeah, I, I think something that's predated the internet. I think that this is a piece of service journalism that most publications think is really important, which is, you know, first Monday of October is coming, give us, you know, a a sense of what's coming. And by the same token, you know, it's July 4th, it's July 7th, what just happened. And I think those are are sort of perennial pieces. And I actually think they're useful, because I think, you know, in, in the sort of, Whiz bang of decisions coming down, (laughs) it's hard to see big themes. And, you know, there are, I, I think almost every preview that you read this year that kind of tees up these are the big themes is making some sort of interesting, insightful points about there is a, a a thread through the cases that the big cases the court's going to hear that's pretty different from what came down in June. And here's why. And I think those are very useful pieces of journalism. You know, it, it was my opportunity to say, I think, uh, I can't even remember if I said this in my preview, but you know, certainly these panels that I've been doing, it's an opportunity to say like last term, looked like a really big, Liberal term and huge wins on marriage and king and on you know fair housing and um, you know judicial speech, and so it looks as though you know the left is in its ascendancy at the court, but you know that's not what this term is going to be. And I think that framing is is useful and important, and I think that these pieces aren't just you know you cough up five hairballs of you know things that are coming. I think it's a way to say, here's something to look for in the coming months.
1: Uh, what else, while, while we have t- like maybe two minutes, what else would you, if you could ask Dolly anything, Joe, what would you ask her?
0: One, one, uh, by way of, of the preview of the term, one thing that the IP bar is talking about is the fact that, uh, it's, it's the, it's the dog that isn't barking. Uh, the fact that the court has had a lot of IP cases, including a lot of patent cases over the last few years. And it seems like so far, although though they're not ready, they're not, uh, they're not finished. Uh, filling out their docket for the term. Uh, there aren't any IP cases.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, somebody said that yesterday uh at a, at a thing that I did that this is the the death penalty. You know, this is the, there's a lot of not necessarily square on death penalty cases, but I think the court has agreed to hear maybe 7 or 8. Mm. Um death you know, lot a lot of criminal cases on the docket, and I I think it's a little bit. You know, people always say like, what happened to those Guantanamo cases? I think that at some point the justices just go on screen save for some you know amount of time on on some issues, and and you know certainly they've been on screen save um, on reproductive rights since two thousand seven, and so I think that they're just and 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 I wonder if you can draw a straight line between you know glossip and the way the term ended. And just the incredible renewed interest in all these death cases, although I suspect these were all granted before. Mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, I I do think that that the court does a fair bit of signaling about what it's interested in right now. And that might be a little bit going on, you know, that I just think we may look back and this was a big, big, big term for, you know, how we pick jurors and how we, uh, you know, whether judges trump juries and, you know, just the sort of machinery of death, fine tuning it, uh, it may be that term, but i you know I think that 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 things go in and out of fact you know I, I'm asked every single day like why is the court not taking post Mcdonald another guns case right after Haller Mcdonald like I just think things and and a lot of it has to do with tactics and strategy, and you know we're waiting for the case, or we don't know that they're five or this isn't the right vehicle, or blah blah blah. But I, I just think that for for reasons that I can't fully put my finger on, this appears to be the not quite death penalty term.
0: So it includes things like the retroactivity of life without parole for juvenile offenders and other Eighth Amendment issues that are all within that rubric, right?
2: There's just a tremendous number of, you know, how we and, and right. And, and Justice Kennedy basically begged for a, a, solitary, a, a solitary case. So oh, yeah. I, I just think maybe there. Eye is on this right now, um, and and that's you know with the understanding that that things can change in a week, you know, and we
1: and we don't know who voted to grant these criminal cases. Right. I mean, there's a part of me that wonders if you're if you're if you want to preserve because I don't think this is the term where the death penalty goes away, at least, but um, although I do think it's going away. <laughs> you know, we've but, you argued know, it's about true this in but,
0: Congress too. The criminal justice
1: reform is very significant on Congress's docket right now as well. Yeah, so, but if you want to preserve the death penalty, I wonder if you don't take some cases where it's not squarely presented, where it looks like you can make a little bit of progress. You know uh, what I mean? Take some of the steam out of the cooker. Yeah, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, this is maybe too, this is too meta and too, too speculative, yeah. but I don't know. Yeah, and I've not looked at those cases in detail either to to, to uh, detect whether there's some pattern that would add to that. But I don't know.
2: I, I wonder how much of it is, you know, exactly what you're saying, that this is a place where groups on the left really feel that they're gaining traction and they think, you know, they're getting Kennedy. He's gettable. He's not gettable on lethal injection. He's not gettable on doing away. We only have two votes to do away with the death penalty. So it's happening now. But I think that there is a feeling like he is receptive to these. He's receptive to this juvenile life without parole, you know, framing. And so I think there is a strange way in which, at least on the left, you know, they're not terrified to bring an abortion case. You know, they're terrified of, of certain areas where they know, you know, my God, affirmative action. Crap, we're hearing Fisher again. You know, this is bad. <laughs> but I think, that, I think that the death penalty is one of the places where they feel like he's gettable on a lot of these sort of ancillary eating away with a tiny, tiny little teaspoon at uh, the death penalty.
0: And in antitrust, I mean, the, the triumph of the Chicago school, which is which really has happened, Uh, in antitrust, you know, that was... It starts in 1977, and slowly but surely, a drop of water, a drop of water, a drop of water, and you look up in the mid-90s, and antitrust is unrecognizable from what it was before 1977. So
1: so things that happen slowly can make a huge difference. Yeah, I just... It, it, but things can also happen quickly, and yeah. right, and that's that's the Obergefell story, and that's why right. you know that's why we disagree about I think how long you know if about the death about the death penalty, yeah, because yeah, I've said three years, and yeah, but. <laughs> and you say that's crazy. And but I say three years, It you know, it's not for sure it'll happen. It may never happen. Right. I just I just think it's the kind of thing that could happen quickly for various reasons. Sure. But like, how do you how do you predict that? What do these recent grants say about no. that? I think it's really ambiguous. And the next president is going to pick a few justices because they're getting old. Yes. Yeah, so so, Dalia, we should end there. Who are the Supreme Court justices uh, nominated by President Trump?
2: Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I think Ivanka, (laughs) his son, Eric. I think we could have an all-Trump Supreme Court. Um,
1: (laughs) There would be cameras in the courtroom. That's for damn sure.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He might nominate himself if there were cameras in there. And then it would be like the GOP debate. He'd refuse to appear.
1: Is there anything in the Constitution that maybe I'm... I'm, maybe it's just because it's late and I'm showing my ignorance. Is there anything in the Constitution that says that you can't be chief justice and the president at the same time? No, I think the only, well, I think the
0: only thing it says is you can't be in a member of Congress and in the executive branch at the same time, which, of course, means there's an argument to that uh, the text implies uh, no prohibition,
1: or I mean, it would have said so. It's impl- I mean, the chief presides over the trial in cases ah, of, a, of impeachment, but right. it doesn't say that the president can't preside over his or her own trial. Now, of course, William, this is a, a, as a as a fat man. Uh, it delights <laughs>
0: me uh, oh. that it, in history, at least one person has been both the president and the chief justice, although successively, not simultaneously. Not simultaneously, and that was the deliciously rotund William Howard
2: Taft. Taft. Right, mm-hmm. right.
0: Uh, who also built the modern Supreme Court building.
1: So,
2: um, correct.
1: And and got to love Taft. Was in a pre television. I think, live action version of what was then in the colonial era, The Apprentice. <laughs> Not the colonial era, but you know what I mean. It was right. You know. Only
0: instead of saying you're fired, he said, make me some more food. I think he said you were discharged. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know. All right. So this is clearly descending into delightful nonsense, but right. nonsense nonetheless. And you have important things to do. So thanks a bunch. As always, Dahlia, you're the best.
2: It's a pleasure. At one one ninety second of that Peabody will be mine.
1: <laughs> I, look, if we win a Peabody, I will assume it is because of uh, the episodes that you've been on, and you I'll will get fully it. half of it. I will, I will okay, cut it well, in half I, and send I, half I to just you. Want,
2: I want my, uh, you know, no, no 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 podcasting without representation. I want my fair share. You will That's, get
0: your aliquot share for sure. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure, gentlemen.
0: <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> take <Alia>. care. Bye bye.
2: <laughs>